And hello to all you Metsian folks. This is the Converted Mets fan, Sam Maxwell, and you are here with a Metsian podcast. And we are so thankful that you can join us on this Metsian off day to uh, keep riding with the uh, the Metsian theme. It's wild card fever, uh, and without further ado, let me bring on uh, my compadres and my our featured guest. Uh, first of all, let me uh, invite my partner in crime, Michael Colant, who is in what he would like to call uh, the noisiest section of Brooklyn, from a, at least it, a phone it, perspective, right? It really is. I mean, the noise is just nonstop in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. FYI. And and uh, it, it's almost Manhattan-like in many ways these days. The hustle and the bustle on Bedford Avenue is quite palpable. Uh, I know exactly what you're talking about, but... But, hey, it's that independent chip on, on Brooklyn's shoulder that has uh, always carried it forward, and, uh, uh, you know, it will continue to carry it until uh, the end of time, as they say. But let me bring <laughs> on uh, who I like to call the Mets fan incarnate. Uh, that is Faith and Fear and Flushing's Greg Prince, who is uh, no stranger to these podcasts. Greg, uh, it's, you, I, I want to say that you have been here before, a lot of us have been here before, but with the excitement, with, with the, the underdog uh, come-from-behind stretch that we've been going through, you've seen it happen, uh, uh, and, and, and as a, a child, no less. I've seen it periodically, not nearly enough, but uh, now and again. I I will say that this year's trajectory, the timing of it, the distance between the Mets and the prize they're chasing has never been closed so fast at this particular juncture of the season, about two-thirds of the way through. We've had great comebacks later. We've had surprising Mets teams that weren't supposed to do anything, kind of show their stuff earlier, and then kick it into an extra gear come August. We've had teams that have disappointed us and then get it together as September approached. I don't remember anything like this. And when you've got a franchise that's in its 58th season, and I've been fortunate enough to have experienced 51 of them to some extent, to most extent, really, Uh, you're surprised when you see something you haven't seen before. Usually with the Mets, it's the other way. It's like, oh, my God, I've never seen this before. But for a change, the the tone of the the experience is, is upbeat. It's like, I've never seen this before. So uh, it's a lot of fun right now. I think if we were doing this a week ago, uh, it would have been kind of, yeah, hey, why don't we, we see, uh, you know, let's cross our fingers and see what happens. And two weeks ago, I think it would have been just like it had been for, for months on end. But this is a very interesting inflection point for the 2019 Mets. Mike, you know, we were talking about, you know, most likely they're not going to do it. And, hey, they're, they're still uh, – a lot of baseball left, obviously. Uh, people have been talking about the the uh, competition that they've been playing, but, you know, we were not necessarily talking about them going 13-1, and one, obviously. 
you know, we never dream of, of a run of this type of nature, which is, uh, to throw it out there, the best run in Mickey Calloway's tenure so far, considering he's trumped 11 and 1 to start 2018 now with 13 and 1. Um, I, I think Rich on our last podcast, Mike, brought up a good point that everybody has passed to play the bad teams. And the Mets have done so during a stretch that other teams that were ahead of them have fallen back a little bit. Uh, Milwaukee's picked up a, a little bit, and, and uh, they, they're still, it's still a crowded field right there. But going into this Nats series, the Mets are two and a half behind the Washington Nationals, which is a a .5 game better than they were when they found themselves staring at the Washington Nationals in first place in 2015 going into that uh, historic weekend. You know what? It's like... It's it's a season. It's, the volatility of the season has been like the stock market. That's the way I I I compare it. Uh, and what we're seeing now is the correction. There was a lot of short sellers out there, and now you know now that they've normalized, you're having to pay the ask. So that would be the national series. Uh, you know, Rich and I and Greg we discussed. And, and when we were in attendance at, at City Field for the Pirates game, that you know, with this talent on this team, they couldn't go, you know, so long being so bad. Uh, at some point, things were going to turn around, and the law of averages were going to take over. That's what we've been witnessing. Yes, they've been playing some uh, fairly moribund teams. Uh, that's without a doubt. But the fact of the matter is. When we were having this conversation, say in June, the Mets were the second worst team in the National League. Right now, they've leapfrogged many of those teams that they were supposed to be above at this point, or or we assumed that they would be above those teams at this point. So again, I would point to this being a correction. So now that they've stabilized and normalized, let's see how they 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 manage their P and L, their profit and loss going forward. I'll stick with the Wall Street analogy. You know, Greg, I, I was sometimes I think about uh, that Colorado Rockies stretch, 21 out of 22 games to make it to the World Series. Um, at some point, you know, you do start facing the better competition, which includes the playoffs, obviously. So I, I feel as if, you know, the Mets are, are, have, have put themselves into a place. They're not going to be daunted by this. Um, they they have taken care of business against the lesser competition, and now is a chance to prove to the league that it wasn't a fluke. Yeah, well, you know, they have to prove to whoever they're playing that they can beat them. Uh, in this, this case, this weekend, it'll be the Nationals. Uh, it's just another ball game. That's how they, they have to uh, face it or have to have to, uh, I hate to use any football uh, phrases, how they have to tackle it. Uh, Listen, we remember all too well the final weekend of the 2007 season where the, I believe, last place Florida Marlins uh, 
should have been easy pickings for a team on the cusp of making the playoffs like the Mets, and they knocked the Mets off. Uh, a year later, same scenario, basically, same opponent, same result, sadly. So, you know, you play who you play, and you make hay where you can make hay. And, you know, right now, if the Mets are supposed to be worried about playing the Nationals and these other teams, uh, these other teams have to worry about playing a team that's won 13 out of 14 and I believe 19 out of 24. So, you know, I, this league, to somewhat to Mike's point, uh, you know, there's been a lot of market corrections going on. Remember, the Nationals were left for dead at one point, and they, they are the wild card leaders. The Giants were left for dead at one point. Uh, I mean, I, I remember using them all, all the way back in late June, using them as sort of a uh, yardstick saying, oh, great, the only teams we have a better record then are the Giants and the Marlins. And then the Giants took off. You know, they, they completely changed their trade deadline plans by by being a contender. Now, they've cooled off some. The, the Phillies had a, a hot stretch, and they seem to have uh, stumbled back toward everybody else. The Reds are suddenly rising uh, a little bit behind us. So everybody is kind of in the same boat here. Uh, you know, you've, you've got... The Dodgers, who are in a league of their own. You got the Braves, who sadly appear a little better than everybody else in the East, although I guess we'll see them next week and find out. And then you've got not not quite as big a bundle of teams as we had maybe heading into July 31st. There's been a little sorting out, especially, uh, you know, as we saw with Pittsburgh and San Diego when we played them. But there's still a bunch of teams in it, and the Mets are as good as any of those teams from what I've seen. And, you know, it doesn't guarantee anything. You know, you could say regardless of competition, the Mets maybe are bound to not catch every break. But, you know what, this this stretch that they've been playing, it doesn't feel like, you know, they've gotten super lucky or anything. It doesn't feel like the ball is bouncing in their way. Uh, They've played really well. They have, for the time being, mastered the – the core competencies of baseball. They're they're pitching better than anybody. They're fielding very well. And we know what, what a minefield defense can be for these New York Mets. And, you know, this core of players who, as, as Mike said, he and Rich and I uh, talked about when, when, when we were taking in a game together, uh, they're not bad. And they're all kind of proving it at the same time. So it's, it's an interesting moment uh, in the season. Yeah, you're you're not playing the the Marlins and the Padres and the Pirates and the White Sox. You'll be playing the Nationals and the Braves. You'll you'll be getting you know visits from the Indians. Uh, somewhere down the road, you'll be playing the Dodgers. You'll be playing the Cubs. But um, it's all part of the big 162, and I think the Mets are as equipped as anybody to 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 handle it. So um, you know, there's a lot of instinctive, at best, cautious optimism in a Mets fan. And that, that, that's the best case scenario because it's usually, you know, you're fighting off cynicism, you're fighting off pessimism, you're fighting off fatalism. Um, what the hell? A little bit of optimism couldn't hurt. 
I, there's so many different directions to go, but let's let's finish out with the standings uh, before we get uh, really start dissecting what the Mets are doing right and what they still need to do better. Um, uh, Mike, a few a few uh, I guess just only a week ago or so, they were about like 12 games behind the Braves. Pete Alonso brought up the fact that if we keep doing what we're doing, you know, we're not just eyeing for the wild card, we're eyeing for the the, the, the division. Obviously, that's the right company line to, to approach. Um, I think the Braves are a rather sound fundamental baseball team. Um, but at, uh, sitting at 8.5 games back, they've, they've climbed a few games during this stretch. Obviously, when you win 13 out of 14, you're going to do that, and 19 out of 24, as Greg said. Uh, but... You know, I, I think that this isn't completely out of the realm of possibility, even against these uh, uh, better teams. No, not out of the realm of possibility, not at all. But if they were smart, they would just take it one day at a time. Uh, with regards to Alonzo, sometimes when you're asked a, quest, a question and they put a microphone in your mouth, uh, you're forced to just, you know, offer up something. Uh, I you know I I listen to what players and coaches and managers say uh, with a grain of salt. Again, sometimes they they get asked things and they're just forced to you know answer for the sake of answering and being nice about it. But uh, just take it one day at a time. Uh, things are working out their way, and I I don't think it's a surprise. For a long time this season, you know what we what were we complaining about? The bullpen, the bullpen, the bullpen, blown saves, blown saves. Uh, and the offense, you know, the offense was it was was adequate. Uh, they didn't have the potency to overcome a lot of those mistakes by the bullpen. But look what happened: the Mets got Luis Avilon back. They got Wilson back. So that puts other people back in their former roles, i.e., Lugo, etc. Uh, you know. To have everyone pointing their finger at Edwin Diaz was perhaps uh, misguided because there was a lot of blame to go around. But with the return of these two guys, the bullpen, and I'll use the word again, normalizes. It's 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 stabilized, and they're closing out games. Now, are they going to continue winning at this pace? No. But in order to be viable in those last two weeks of September, they have to keep up at least a rate of victory. Uh, And and then we'll see where that leaves them. So, you know, just take it a day at a time, play a game at a time, and see where that leaves you. Uh, Pay attention to detail. You know, it's always the small things. Don't don't look too far down the line. Just worry about your next at-bat, Pete, and uh, September will work itself out. And within that, he actually did say something along those lines that we have to take it one game at a time, one at bat at a time, one pitch at a time. Um, so, Greg, the the Vargas trade was interesting in in as much that I was getting a little little heat from even a Philadelphia fan that we gave we gave him Jason Vargas for basically nothing. Uh, last night, Jason Vargas was very Jason Vargasy for the Philadelphia Phillies. And, you know, everybody was surprised that we weren't selling off. But in, in, in basically giving Jason Vargas away, keeping 
Zach Wheeler and Noah Syndergaard and getting Marcus Stroman, we did what Mets fans, they did what Mets fans had been calling for since March, which was replace Jason Vargas. Um, and, and just thinking about this stretch right now and thinking about being .5 behind the Philadelphia Phillies when we were probably like five games back of even them alone at some point, um, I, I'm, I'm just I'm thinking to myself that I guess I guess the question is, are you sad <laughs> to see Jason Vargas go? And I definitely have a little bit of sarcasm around that question in some fashion. But take 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 it wherever you want regarding uh, uh, the trade deadline, since this is the first time we're hearing from you since the uh, the the now famed trade deadline. Well. Uh, no, I'm not sad that Jason Vargas is gone. Um, he pitched pretty well in 2019 after a couple of rough outings. Pitched pretty well down the stretch, if we can say that there was a stretch for a team that finished out of it uh, in 2018 after you know a miserable first two thirds of the season. Uh, you know, there's J- Jason Vargas was an archetype of you know, veteran, change-up artist, used his wits to confound hitters, you know, failing, having great stuff. But honestly, once he went through the whole thing with threatening uh, the Newsday reporter, Tim Healy, and never really giving any kind of either apology or explanation, I'd been sort of done with him. Uh, to the extent that a person who roots for a team can be, quote, done with a player, I just, you know, took it as if, if this is the guy who's going to pitch tonight well I guess I'll I'll hope he does okay and <laughs> take not not a great deal of pleasure in his uh, personal success really, really kind of a turn off but uh, you know what the um, I guess we'll see start seeing in earnest on Friday night what kind of an upgrade we have in Marcus Stroman uh, because that is basically what the the trade comes down to prospects aside that were given up to get him because, you know, we're, we're looking at a rotation that was the same four guys as before, but with Stroman swapped in for Vargas. And, you know, Stroman had kind of a nervous outing his first time in Pittsburgh, which to be expected. You know, he, he made a great fielding play. It, it won the Play of the Week award which is one of those awards I had no idea existed, but apparently it does, so good for him. And, you know, he gave them a, I think he pitched into the fifth inning that night. You know, he obviously has, has good stuff, and he has good command going. He is a, an upgrade over Jason Vargas. It, it was exciting to get a player like that pretty much out of the blue. Nobody was saying, you know, you know who the Mets are going to get? Marcus Stroman because at the time the Mets were not a contender. And this is, you know, what, two weeks ago. So, um, you know, the the rotation is enhanced. The, you know, four of the five guys are intact. Uh, you know, Syndergaard and Wheeler were, were allegedly going to go, or at least they were talked about in that way. I think Wheeler, you know, I think I would have not bet against him going. And Syndergaard... It's just hard to tell what, what the Mets' thinking was because they just seem to have some sort of, or at least they, they seemed to have 
some sort of reservation about this very talented pitcher with a pretty big personality who I guess until fairly recently was sort of frustrating but has really come around and if you're to, you know, take in the results certainly leading up to the trade deadline and coming out of the trade deadline where the two guys who were allegedly on the block are concerned, they made the right move. You know, the the cliche about you know, the, sometimes the best trades you, you make are the ones you don't make. And not trading Syndergaard, not trading Wheeler, uh, per, perhaps combined with the message sent by guys we just went out and got Marcus Stroman, perhaps energized the team um, to the extent that a team needs to be energized. And they are all professionals, and uh, we've established that they have a lot of talented players. But... Um, you know, the, the over 162 games, I, I think uh, a, a team needs these sort of little motivations to keep going. And this was this was a big one. So, you know, by, by making essentially one move, it was two different moves, but essentially trading, you know, the, the older, perhaps, you know, more established, more established, wiser, whatever, whatever cliches you'd want to attach, pitcher, to the guy who's, you know, a little more dynamic, maybe a little more combustible, but uh, certainly, you know, rates as a star, certainly all-star caliber, uh, I think that was a great message. But now we just got to see uh, you know, that, that it culminates in good outings. Um, you know, one of the play, one of, one of the precedents I thought of, you know, I heard a lot of uh, people like bring up Victor Zambrano, somebody like that, when they trade Scott Casimir to get Zambrano in a year when they were sort of on the cusp of falling out of the race and all they did was fall out of the race. Zambrano got hurt and Scott Casimir went on to become the kind of pitcher the Mets really could have used in the next couple of years. But the guy I thought of, uh, among others, was Hideo Nomo who was also sort of a surprise for the Mets to be getting, a guy who was a little more damaged goods, I think, by, excuse me, 1998. Uh, but he had been, you know, a sensation, 1995. And we got him here, and it never really worked out. And he was, was kind of on his way to being a journeyman the rest of his career. I hope that's not what we're looking at for a couple of innings against Pittsburgh last weekend. Uh, I, I thought of Nomo, but I also, you know, I thought about Frank Viola when they went out and got him in 89. Uh, what a message that sent, and unfortunately, Viola pitched in some bad luck, and uh, it didn't really work out in 89. But, um, you know, again, the, the funny thing is that the team that went out and got Marcus Stroman, the team that went out and traded Jason Vargas to a, a sensible wild-card rival, wasn't a contender. We, I, I still can't get over that, that in, in this short, short time span, how seriously we are compelled to take the New York Mets. So, um, you know, everybody's pitching in and chipping in, hitting in, whatever you want to call it. And uh, I, I think uh, Stroman can be a part of that. And as far as Vargas, you know, the Phillies have lost his two starts. It's not all on him by any means. But, um, you know, good, good, good luck, I'll say sarcastically, to Jason Vargas. <laughs> Mike, they solidified this rotation. I think uh, Greg hit the uh, nail on the head. Uh, with nervous outing. It seemed he he was just a little bit, you know, uh, uh, jittery until he made that play in the first inning, which was a spectacular play. It should 
should not uh, be unstressed about that. Um, it, it's it's interesting because the the rotation wasn't by numbers one of the best in the league, but what they did was solidify a rotation that always has the potential to be the best in the league. And right now, the way Zach Wheeler is pitching again, the way Noah Syndergaard is pitching again, uh, and the fact that Jake is all of a sudden coming hot into uh, the stretch run of of, uh, trying to make his point about a second straight Cy Young. Uh, He'll have a lot of competition with Hunjin Ryu. And, um, of course, Stephen Matt has has been – Pitching quite soundly, uh, uh, you know, I, I still think Steven Matt always needs to tighten up, but, he, he, you know, the, the stuff is always there with everybody. And all they did by getting Marcus Stroman is seriously solidify the potential for the best rotation in baseball. Without a doubt. And if anybody, they're going to carry the Mets. Uh, Stroman. On paper, we're improved, are we not? You know, that first game, he, he was all geeked up. I would have been, too, coming home, you know, well, in a sense, to the Mets. Uh, first game on the mound for them, trade, traveling, you know, packing your bags and and trying to make a good impression. You know, people tend to get geeked up. So let's see what happens moving forward as he gets settled in and, and as you say, those jitters dissipate. But, uh you know, we've been waiting for this rotation for 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 all of them to get on the same page of music for a while now, and perhaps that's what we're seeing. They're all starting to gel together. Uh, but it's definitely a strong five. Very happy about it. Uh, we've bashed Brody uh, a lot this season for several of the moves he's made. So on that note, I will say that a, he pulled off a trade that other GM general managers did not. And uh, this, having Stroman on board, better fits his narrative than going forward with Vargas. Uh, I think for obvious reasons. Uh, it was, you know, his words and, and having Vargas and featuring Vargas, uh, that, you know, that was, that, that was a conflict. So this better fits Brody's narrative. And I'll give him credit for, you know, making the transaction that apparently other general managers couldn't. Yeah, it's it's. I'm I'm really excited to see what he has in front of the the City Field crowd. It's going to be uh, quite excellent uh, tomorrow night, one way or the other. And, and um, Greg, I I have yes. to say, obviously, I think that hi we we. We have you again. I, I just got your text, and, and we welcome you back to a Metzian podcast. And um, Glad to be we, here. Uh, we were just <laughs> we are just wrapping up uh, talking about the starting rotation. I I uh, was just mentioning how excited I am to have him uh, pitch tomorrow night and, and talk about throwing uh, him directly into the fire. We all know how heated these these Nationals games can be. Um, and obviously, I think they're going to to uh, uh, ride the backs of the starting rotation, but that bullpen still needs to uh, have a little bit more tweaking to go. Obviously, we've been talking about uh, uh, some guys coming back, Justin Wilson, Luis Avalon, uh, and kind of solidifying the roles of some of the other players. 
I think Gazelman still needs to tighten up. We need to, uh, we're we're going to need him at 2016 form to really make a stretch run of this thing. Um, and Edwin Diaz, even though he's had uh, some success not completely blowing games, he hasn't been perfect during those games. Uh, do, would you ride with Seth Lugo as closer right now at the same time? You know, you still need that eighth inning. What, what is your take on what to do right now about the bullpen as the Mets find themselves in the thick of the hunt? Well, I, th- I think the deeper the starters can go, the better off the bullpen will be. I think we've seen a lot of that over the last couple of weeks. And, you know, when you have Zach Wheeler going eight, Noah Syndergaard going seven, even Stephen Matz going six and two-thirds, or throwing a complete game shutout, uh, as, he, as he did a couple of weeks ago. And, you know, DeGrom being DeGrom, uh, you know, it, it takes the pressure off and you're, you don't have to construct out out of paper mache and, you know, lean on the the Tyler Bashler, Jacob Rame, Syracuse shuttle, and you can get right to the back of the, the bullpen. Um, it'll be interesting to see what the Mets' newest acquisition, Brad Brock, has. I know he, you know, it's a weird little interval we're in that we don't have the sort of secondary trade deadline. Ergo, anybody who's available to be picked up is, quite frankly, somebody else's recycling bin. Uh, and that's what Brad Brock is, but the Mets picked him up today. And if Phil Regan can work his vulture magic on Brad Brock, that, that's one more... You know, another brick in the wall, shall we say, uh, from the Pink Floyd songbook uh, against uh, National League hitters. Uh, you know, to, to the crux of the matter, uh, Lugo and Diaz, I, I, I think it's it's a fine line that has to be walked because you you do risk completely losing Edwin Diaz. So once they didn't trade him, and I don't know how serious they were about listening to offers, you know, they're sort of committed to it. And which, of course, was the idea of that you have a guy who has the kind of stuff he has and put up the kind of numbers he did with the Mariners, but who obviously doesn't have it going on uh, in, in Mets land. Uh, you know, the, the knee-jerk reaction and knee jerks aren't necessarily wrong is to say, well, put Lugo in the ninth inning, but then you got to worry about the eighth inning, like you said. And are you comfortable with Robert Gazelman, uh, who to me is, is the embodiment of what Forrest Gump was talking about vis-a-vis boxes of chocolates and never knowing what you're going to get. So, you know, Lugo is, is the man in the eighth inning question is, you know, how important is the eighth inning versus the ninth inning? Can you just flip those roles? Are you blowing the game in the eighth inning by bringing in Diaz? Uh, Is there bringing Diaz back to life, which would be the ideal solution? You should want to have this conversation from a position of strength from saying, you know what, we have two potential closures depending on matchups. We'll use Diaz in the eighth, Lugo in the ninth, or Lugo in the eighth, Diaz in the ninth, because it it fits our best chance of winning, not, oh, my God, we're desperate. Uh, you know, they're, they're having the players' weekend jerseys again uh, soon, 
and Diaz will be going with his uh, MLB-approved nickname, Sugar. To me, his nickname is Don't Blow It, because it's what I say every time I see him. And if it, if it was, uh, if things started going well, I would like to believe he would change his, his preferred nickname to Didn't Blow It, uh, which he didn't do the other day, which was nice. Uh, you know, like, like you said, he, he doesn't have clean innings. He has not been that shutdown closer. And, you know, once in a while you can handle that because they're all human. Uh, you, you can't expect one, two, three innings every time out, no matter who the closer is. But, you know, he he, he walks the you know, he walks the tightrope. He flies into the danger zone uh, for all you Kenny Loggins and Archer fans out there. So, um, you know, I, I, you know, I, I, I join the chorus in saying, you know, don't be afraid to, to use Seth Lugo, who is now the definitive hot hand, more than a hot hand. I mean, he's your best reliever. Don't be afraid to use him like you did the other day, which was the second game of that doubleheader, the one that vaulted them over 500, six outs. I think it was like something like 22 pitches. Uh, you know, that's something you don't see out of Edwin Diaz. Um you know, you don't want anybody's arm falling off either. I, you know, yeah, I had the feeling earlier in the season that's the wall again to use to use that the imagery that uh, that Lugo ran up against. But that was when you were using him earlier, and you, and you had no faith in anybody. So, you know, I I think quietly this group is kind of coming together. Maybe a little a little further behind all the other aspects of the team that we were talking about, but it's it's not necessarily automatic cringe. When the uh, when the bullpen is called on, and I think it's because you're you're seeing them in the seventh inning, in the eighth inning, not in the the fifth inning, in the sixth inning. So you know, I, I guess if if we're going to indulge our you gotta believe instincts and and all of that, and we talk about underdogs and miracles and comebacks, well, we gotta have a little faith in these guys. So we'll we'll assume that uh, that they're all working on it. Uh, whether we're talking about the the, the pitching coach turned manager whether we're talking about the, the pitching guru turned pitching coach and whether we're talking about, you know, a, a guy who saved 57 games last year for a lousy team. So, you know, may, maybe uh, there, there's – listen, there was there was no hope a few weeks ago and there's hope now. So maybe there's hope left for Edwin Diaz. Speaking of hope, we are all hoping that Phil Regan can uh, work his – seeming magic uh, on Brad Brack, who has uh, a 613 ERA and a 177 whip in 42 games for the Cubs this year. He was released Monday, and he has been signed by the Mets. Uh, he has a long track record of success before this season, posting a 305 ERA from 2012 to 2018. And that comes uh, from our friend Tim Healy and his Twitter page. Uh, so, Mike, is it, 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 the Mets had nothing to lose, right? CFL can fix him, and uh, what if? But, but but at the same time, what if Brad is not correct, and you're throwing him into what is the bullpen momentum right now? Well, it's definitely a fresh face in the in the bullpen rotation. We know what we have. Uh, you know, we we'll keep playing this merry-go-round with Syracuse. So I welcome the fresh face, uh, but I think this is this is our Mickey Callaway. 
and, and this is a situation that he needs to manage. Uh, I, you know, at, at this point in time, I would forget about the quote-unquote setup role and the closer role, and, and look at Lugo and look at Diaz and, and view them in situational pitching. What do I mean by that? Go back to the old-school fireman approach. Use your best guy when you need him most. If that situation arises in the eighth, that's when you put out the fire. If it arises in the ninth, that's when you put out the fire. Should it arise in the seventh, that's when you put out the fire. I think that would be the best approach to massage this going forward. Uh, but I'll also add, look back to the championship seasons of the Mets in 69 and 86. When we talk 86, we speak of Jesse Orozco and Roger McDowell. When we speak of 69, we speak of Ron Taylor and Tug McGraw. So there's no reason for us not to speak of Seth Lugo and Edwin Diaz. And I think it would be in Mickey Calloway's best interest to uh, use them both uh, in, in, in that fireman role or fireman approach. Yeah, I would concur. Uh, hopefully, Edwin Diaz, I mean, you know, when Edwin Diaz was at his best this season, he did look like he has the best stuff in that bullpen. Seth Lugo uh, is is clearly the hot hand right now and has, you know, got to give him props for what he's done since he came up to 2006, uh, in 2016. Robert Gazelman has been a little uneven, but, but it was him and Seth Lugo that helped with one of our last great stretchers. And hopefully that's what we're going to get from, from this collection of, of uh, folks coming up. And I want to shift to the offense. And I want to go directly to a man named Ahmed Rosario, who's really coming into his own, both on the defensive end, but, but really, I mean, the last 30 games, Greg, Ahmed Rosario, Rosario is batting 345 with a 385 on base percentage and a 513 slugging. He's got three home runs and seven RBIs, which is, Remarkable uh, uh, that the numbers aren't higher there, but he also has walked seven times, which is is remarkable numbers for him in the last 30 days, considering he's hardly ever able to get on base. And that's where you see that 385 on base percentage is the fact that he's been able to to uh, add some walking to some hot hitting. He's stolen four bases during that time. do you, do you think that it's just confidence alone, or do you think he's just ever focused? The fact that he's shored up the defense has allowed him to completely uh, hone in what he's best at with hitting. You know, we, we knew he was a talented player. You know, we were told that he was, I think, at the time of his promotion, the number two prospect in baseball for, for whatever that was worth. And, you know, the, the defense was, was a baffling earlier this season. And really the one thing I hung my hat on was during one of the games I was listening to on the radio and Wayne Rendazzo was talking about uh, however many errors Rosario had made to that point or however many games out of blank errors in blank last games, Howie Rose said, you know what, this is that's pretty much what Bud Harrelson did his first full year. 
1967, and Buddy turned out just fine. And I took a lot of, you know, well, put a lot of stock into what Howie Rose has seen. And if he's going to invoke Buddy Harrelson's defense where Ahmed Rosario is concerned, uh, I tried not to worry. Still, it was tough to watch balls kind of clank off him or balls he just couldn't get to. But I know he's been working at it. And, you know, even before we talk about the offense, what a night and day difference it's been over the, over the last few weeks. And you know what? If, we, if we're invoking 1973, and you've got to believe, like I was just saying, um, when did that team turn around? What what was the the key to the 73 Mets getting their act together? Wasn't just Hug McGraw, you know, getting a rallying cry and then kind of finding his screwball. Spud Harrelson coming off the disabled list and giving you a solid defensive infield. And from that, everything else flowed. And it feels like that might be what happened here. And the good news is whether there's a connection or not, that all due respect to Bud Harrelson, he was not the offensive player to not have those tools that Ahmed Rosario has. Ahmed Rosario is an outstanding offensive player. Uh, you know, we, we saw what Jose Reyes was. He may not quite be Jose Reyes with the speed, uh, with the, you know, Jose was the greatest base killer the Mets have ever had. Jose Reyes was the greatest crafter of triples that the Mets ever had. And, you know, deservedly the, the all-time shortstop uh, for, for, for the 50th year uh, celebration of the Mets. But Rosario may be the best power-hitting shortstop we've ever had. Uh, and really, the, I don't feel, you know, unless you're talking about those times where you kind of plugged Howard Johnson in, um, or even the year that uh, Struble Cabrera had his first year here, I don't think we've ever seen anybody who has the offensive repertoire that Rosario has. And now it's all coming together. I mean, he's still a little chase a pitcher every now and then. Uh, you know, he's, he has not really turned into that base stealing threat, I think, that we, we sort of anticipated. But you know what? He's doubling. And he's scoring. <laughs> he's, uh, he's doing plenty. So uh, I'm not going to complain. And, and I think it, it, there is something – a little under the radar about him, which is sort of amazing when you think about it, because this was the guy, again, two years ago at this time. We're not talking about ages ago. Two years ago at this time, he was the one on whose shoulders we were putting everything as fans. But what's happened since then? Well, we've got Pete Alonzo to to focus our, our, our hopes and dreams on, and we have Jeff McNeil to focus our hopes and dreams on, and you know, we've had also sort of sort of a renaissance out of Michael Conforto to uh, to get excited about, and so Rosario's kind of been able to to mature. To, uh, you know, you know, and I, I use that not not about his personality, which I had no complaint with, but you know, his talents, his abilities, and you know, his his understanding of the game has been able to mature a little bit out of the spotlight while playing every day, which is a neat trick, especially in New York, especially with an impatient fan base like we are. So uh, I, I think it's uh, very, very insightful that you bring him up because I think that he, as much as anybody, is the key to what's going on here. And 
And well, one other thing, uh, and I don't want to. I don't want to use terms like indestructible because that's just asking for trouble from the baseball gods, but um, he has endured. He came up August 1st of 2017, and he's just kept playing. I mean, I know, I know that, that Mickey Calloway has had his uh, insistence on giving him days off that maybe other managers wouldn't have, but he hasn't missed any time, which is unusual for a Met. I think we all recognize that. And... You know, nobody has been on the active roster consecutively by a long shot longer than Ahmed Rosario. And now that I've said that out loud, I I hope it doesn't uh, come back to haunt us. But um, he's a real good ball player. (laughs) uh, Somebody uh, somebody knew what they were doing in in signing him, cultivating him, and promoting him. So it's... um, it's very exciting to to watch him, and I, I, it's very exciting to watch him in a playoff chase. I mean, I, I think you know, to just to uh, to compare it a little bit to last year, you know, when Brandon Nimmo was 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 busting out all over, and it was very exciting to watch. But it wasn't that exciting because the Mets weren't going anywhere. So, you know, you were sort of like, well, this season isn't any good, but at least Brandon Nimmo is has taken a step forward. Put it putting aside what, what what's happened to him with injuries this year, so um, it is you know it's 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 something that we really haven't paid that much attention to at least in Moss, and yet um, it's very gratifying. I have a wood table in front of me. It has been knocked, so you don't have to worry, Greg. I think we're good to go with uh, with jinxing anything. Knock on wood. Uh, so, Michael, before we move on to Michael Conforto, uh, I want to wrap up a little bit with Ahmed Rosario. He has improved every single year that he has been here. He hit 248 his first year in only 46 games. He had 256 in 154 games to echo what uh, Greg just said about uh, um, his resistance, his, his resilience, excuse me. Wow. Um, uh, he had nine home runs, 51 RBIs last year, and right now he is flashing 278 with 12 home runs, 48 RBIs. Uh, on-base percentage is finally getting up there a little bit at 318, and he's slugging 441. Uh, he's only 23 years old. Uh, isn't the sky the limit with this kid? That's the beauty of it. He's only 23 years old. Rosario is an interesting case study because the Mets cleared out the position and just handed it to him. And they left them alone ever since. How many, how many prospects, how many call-ups have we, can we say that the Mets have done that with? Not many. Yet, you know, they did it properly, uh, as far as I'm concerned. They cleared out the position, handed it to them, and let them grow. That being said, you know, hindsight's always 20-20. Looking back, they may have promoted him one year too early. And if that's the only knock I can come up with, well, then that's the only knock I can come up with. I'm... He has a fan in me. I'm in his corner. But that's my only point. Maybe he got promoted one year too early. That's all. Maybe. Yeah, I, I can see. And, and the thing is, is that maybe uh, it was kind of needed a Pete Alonso type thing where they weren't doing the Super 2 thing. Obviously, they initially did that in 2017 because people were certainly calling for him to be promoted. Uh, but... Let's let's segue back over to somebody that uh, Greg mentioned. Uh, speaking of Super Two and and how we hear this conversation around a lot of these guys, Michael Conforto. 
Michael Conforto has been coming on real hot lately. And, Michael, uh, Mike, I'm going to uh, uh, start with you on this one uh, to kind of uh, switch gears a little bit. Um, he has uh, he had been hovering at, like, about 248, 250 for a while, but he's been hitting uh, so well lately that he's gotten his batting average up to 261. He's, his on-base percentage is at 370, and he, he is hitting 25 home runs and 64 RBIs. Um, th- it's, it's, it's nice to see some power in this, this uh, lineup, and Michael Conforto is certainly providing a lot of it right now. Absolutely. Uh, we weren't sure where we were going to get power from this season. Everyone had a little bit, but not too many of them had a lot. Uh, so what he's producing is very welcome. Uh, happy to see it, and I'm enjoying it. Uh, he's been here a little while now. You know, it's not like he, he, he came up two or three years ago. He's been here for some time now. Uh, so it's nice to see him uh, grow into himself, so to say. Uh because there were people on the fence. I was one of them. I, I, I still don't know what to make of them. Uh, I'll put part of that on Brody uh, and this roster construction and the kind of lineup that they put out and the kind of protection that it provides. Uh, you know, so the the football the, the football is connected to the ankle bone, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but on his own, he's proving his worth, and I'm happy to see it. And uh, continue mission. Greg, you know, he's right now playing like the uh, uh, batting title player that that everybody has been saying he could he could win one day. And obviously, we can we'll, we'll save it for the the person who's actually fighting right now for a batting title on our roster. Uh, but um, the Sorry for a second, everybody. Uh, I'm not sure. A lot of noise. We just got a lot of background noise. I'm not sure where that is coming from. Greg, are you still there? Yeah, you know what? I I changed uh, changed seats uh, sitting next to a fan to cool off here, but I turned the fan off in deference to our conversations. (laughs) That might have been it. Well, uh, we want you to stay cool for sure. I understand how humid it is in New York right now, and I will certainly well, be I'm, I'm gonna, uh, in, in the, the pond uh, soon. Well, I, I don't know. I don't know that your listeners need to know this, but I'll raise the window a little bit and uh, let let uh, let a breeze do its thing. <laughs> Go on. See, like right away, I thought it was the loudest neighborhood in Brooklyn, Williamsburg, but but it, it well, seems like well, that, well, what, that what, wasn't what, the case. But. Well, we, 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 we about 10 minutes before we came on the air, there was like a massive lightning and thunderstorm outside my window, and that passed. So uh, a, a, a little fan noise is uh, is actually a blessing. But uh, anyway, go on, please. Well, well, that might be the, the lightning and thunderstorm that is the way Michael Conforto is hitting right now. So that's what my segue. segue. Take it away, Greg. <laughs> Take it away. <laughs> well, yeah, maybe it was just Michael Conforto taking a little off-night batting practice uh, somewhere in the skies over Long Island here. Um, yeah, he's having a uh, having a monstrous second half, and again, he was you know, uh, so honestly, when the Mets were were yet to get it in gear, uh, or even when they were kind of getting it in gear. But we had yet to fully detect what 
they were headed toward. Um, I know I personally was kind of kind of hitting that moment as a fan where I said, you know what, they they got to think about trading almost everybody on this team. And I don't care, you know, what kind of pedigree they have. And other than, to me, other than Alonzo, McNeil, and DeGrom, everybody was up for grabs at the right offer. And that included Conforto, not to mention Rosario. Uh, I'm glad that didn't happen, certainly uh, certainly this week. Um, you know, he hasn't had a full season where he's been healthy throughout, where he has maintained the confidence of management throughout, where he, and even this season, where he's been able to play a position that is comfortable for him. Center field is his third best position, but he's playing it because the Mets need him there because they don't have a center fielder who can hit otherwise. Um, And he's blossomed as a hitter again. It's, as if we we left him in, in at the end of April of 2016. If you'll recall, you know Keith Hernandez going on about what a number three hitter uh, Michael Conforto is destined to be, and you you know that in Keith Hernandez's world, a number three hitter is the highest compliment that can be paid. And you know I I can still see the the graphic that was thrown out there. At, uh, they were they were in the middle of playing the Giants uh, last week of April, heading into May. Uh, Conforto's numbers after so many at bats versus Trout's versus Harper's, and they were comparable. And it's like, okay, we are now on the cusp of this kid becoming that homegrown, all-around offensive superstar we so rarely see here. And then you know whether it was the next day suddenly being in the lineup against Madison Bumgarner and going over fives and, uh, you know, Terry Collins losing faith in him and whatever the, the injury that ended his promising 2017 season. Uh, you know, he wasn't even in the starting lineup in the outfield on opening day until this year, which for a guy who has been around a while is kind of stunning. To, to realize, but then you, you you look back and say, okay, they they DH'd him in Kansas City one year, and he was coming back from surgery still a couple of years later, and in between, you know, they just didn't see the necessity of putting Michael Conforto ahead of anybody else in the outfield. So it's it's taken a while, and and what we tend to forget, and you know, Mike touched on it with Rosario, Rosario being all of 23. Well, you know, Conforto is all of 26. Which, you know, in the old days, uh, you know, we would say that a player's prime was 28 to 32. That's probably not the the spectrum anymore. It probably starts sooner and maybe ends sooner. But Conforto is only, you know, a- after parts of four seasons, of only now really entering his prime, and it's exciting to see. And again, because we we we. You know, he, he may be a little higher up the ladder in terms of visibility. He's also a guy who's gotten the chance to improve a little bit, I won't say under radar, but out of the spotlight because, you know, Alonzo not only attracts the spotlight, he revels in it. And that's probably a really good thing that when you get a player who's comfortable, like Alonzo seems to be, uh, you know, I, I think the effect is 
the you know the the, the reflected light off of him uh, bathes everybody in a, in a warm glow, shall we say? And Conforto has not had to be quote unquote the man, and he has been able to to find his stroke and go to all fields. And we've seen the power, which is amazing. I, I mean, I know, we, we know he could hit home runs. I, I didn't know we. And again, I don't know what what the contents of the balls are these days, but uh, you know, I don't think we knew that that they would travel so far off his bat. So um, he's again. This is this is why we're talking about a team that's a half game out of a a playoff position, uh, more than two thirds the way into the season. You, you would you would figure if if we if we were talking about it in March, like well, what has to go right for the Mets to be in a race? Come August, we would have said, well, Ahmed Rosario and Michael Conforto really need to to step up, and they have, and that's great. You are listening to a Metsian podcast, and we are certainly thankful that you are. Uh, I want to go to some other of the offensive players, and Mike, I'll start with uh, uh, the all-stars on the offense, uh, Jeff McNeil and Pete Alonzo. Both, after a little bit of a lull, have seemed to start coming around, uh, especially Pete Alonzo with that home run ball. But you know what? Jeff McNeil with that home run ball as well. Uh, we've been talking about it on Twitter with Jeff McNeil that, you know, he, he's, he doesn't seem like he would ever have all that much power. And he's obviously a strong guy. But with the power and Jeff McNeil, it's all about precision. Yeah. Uh I, I don't know what to say about McNeil. The kid's great. I, I'm I'm speechless. You know, I, I'm no expert. I don't. I can't explain what he's doing or how he's doing it. I'm just a fan, and I'm enjoying it. Uh, and uh, as far as Pete Alonso, as somebody who's been watching this game for a while now, uh, four decades, I, I've been waiting to see if and when. Uh, he was going to, you know, fall by the wayside, whether the adjustments made to him were going to overwhelm him. And he just keeps adjusting right along with the league. Sure, he's hit a little bit of a a rough patch over the last week or so, but uh, the kid has impressed me with his ability to adapt and make adjustments. Uh, Yeah, he's trying to be a spokesman for the team as well. And you can do that for as long as you're hitting dingers. But, uh, I'm, uh, you know, I'm just impressed with his adaptability, especially with the glove as well. Can't, can't, can't understate that. He, is, he really knows how to pick it over there, Greg. Uh, uh, both uh, Pete Alonzo and Jeff McNeil, why don't you run with it? You know what? Uh, <laughs> McNeil? Was on. I won't speak. I won't speak for everybody, but I'll say he was not on my radar uh, the beginning of the 2018 season, and I get the feeling he wasn't on the organization's radar at the beginning of the 2018 season. And you know, good good for him insinuating himself into the team's plans. And Mike t- talked earlier about Rosario having had shortstop cleared out for him. Remember, they basically moved. Ahmed, excuse me, Ahmed, Estrubal Cabrera to make room for McNeil last year because he, he could not be denied any longer. And, you know, the, the taste we got when he was the 
everyday second baseman for the most part down the stretch was not a fluke. And, you know, he's now been up here more than a year. He's the quickest met to 200 hits uh, in terms of at-bats, and he did it by a lot. And if he was going to be found out, if some, you know, if word was going to get around the league as to what Jeff McNeil's, uh, you know, Achilles heel, not his, you know, actual Achilles tendon or anything, (laughs) you know, what his drawback is as a hitter, word hasn't gone out because he doesn't seem to have one. And he has, you know, the the average may not not challenge John Olerud in terms of the uh, the 354 that he set for a franchise record, he's got a shot at that batting title. Like, uh, I guess only Jose Reyes had, and um, and he's doing it again with pop, which I don't think we, we necessarily saw all that much of late last year, early this year, but he just knows how to hit and isn't afraid to attack, which is so refreshing. Uh, you know, coming out of the era of, you know, we got to, you know, well, I forget what the, the phrases were that, that were in vogue, but basically, you know, a, a lot of pitches being seen. You understand why, but this is this is a kid who is a savant, it seems to me, when it comes to hitting and understanding what pitchers are doing and and where to take balls. And in terms of his defense, you know, the, the fact that they could be without Robbie Cano at the moment Robbie Cano got hot and that one of your options, theoretically, would be, you know, we just slip McNeil back into second base because, you know, that's what we're his actual position. Or, you know, we'll find a second baseman and keep him in the outfield. How many Mets, how many Mets, you know, were first full year in the major leagues? We're talking about a guy who you can slide around the outfield or infield and not really lose anything. He may not be, you know, the best defensive outfielder you're going to see, but he, he's made himself into a competent major league outfielder. He's shown a lot of smarts out there. There have been a lot of, you know, good plays. And we know that he can play the infield. He doesn't hurt you anywhere. And he's batting it on the 330s. And he's hitting home runs. And, and, and nobody saw him coming. This is, you know, this is a different, you know, scenario that has been, that was painted, uh, you know, you know, we we knew Rosario was supposed to be something special, and we we kind of waited, and we knew Conforto was supposed to be something special, and we kind of waited. We had no clue this guy was going to be something special, and we didn't have to wait at all. Come <laughs> through. Uh, he is as important a reason that this team is where it is as anybody. That includes the guy who's hit 37 home runs. And, you know, the, the fact that they both have uh, adorable nicknames and they're, and they're both great pals, apparently, uh, only makes the whole thing better. And the fact that the guy adopted a puppy uh, and, and hit a home run the night he decided he wanted the puppy. So, um, you know, the, this is a... Uh, this this is an incredible find, you know. You know I, I say he's a find, but really, you know, he found himself and he forced himself on the Mets, and the Mets w- weren't stupid enough to let him go. And now now they are being rewarded for their uh, their commendable lack of action 
when they were talking about perhaps trading Jeff McNeil last winter because, you know, as if a Jeff McNeil comes into your life every year. So uh, it's it's a fantastic thing. And again, as I was saying before, it's a fantastic thing that is taking place in a season like this one has become as opposed to saying, well, it's, it's, a, it's a lost season, but at least we get to watch Jeff McNeil hit. Uh, it's a season that has found itself, and it is because uh, we get to see Jeff McNeil hit. On this date in 2018, the New York Mets beat the Cincinnati Reds by a score of 8 to nothing, and we watched really one of the only reasons to watch 2018, Jacob DeGrom, uh, win that night in front of 24,000. 287 at City Field. That brought the Mets to 47. Aha. Thank you. Thank you. That was the first win of uh, two in a row after a loss to the Cincinnati Reds, 6 1, where Vargas lost. That brought their record to 47 65 on the date of Wednesday, August 8th. Today, I am so thankful that there are games that we are watching on this off day that matter greatly to our bottom line. Right now, the Phillies and the Giants' top second are 0-0, and something that kind of relates to what I was talking about earlier, and it's just really funny that we go from uh, really wanting to beat the, the Marlins in four straight games to loving the fact that they are currently beating the Braves Nine to one in the top of the ninth at home. Uh, they should be most likely holding on to that, but it ain't over till it's over. Uh, before we move on to some historical stuff, I, I do believe there's just a couple more things uh, to talk about. Um, first, uh, I'll loop over to Joe Panic, who has ruffled some Met fans' feathers because the Giants usually do, and Panic has been a part of those Giants for a few years now. He has been designated for assignment and uh, will apparently clear waivers as of tomorrow. And rumors are that people would be shocked if he is not a Met. He is a St. John's product. He is a local boy. Mike, obviously, we we always like when some of these local boys come home, like uh, Marcus Stroman, of course. Uh, His injuries have taken the toll, but it still feels like, like maybe they could use some of this panic magic. Uh, to go along with the Metsian magic that they've got going right now. Yeah, you know, without elaborating, elaborating too much, absolutely. Another fresh body can't hurt, just as long as it doesn't cost us anything. You know, I'm all for it. Uh, Greg, you and I saw him speak at uh, in front of some New York San Francisco Giants fans uh, when they won the World Series. Uh, I, I believe, I guess that was, Oh man, help me out with, with 2014. When we, we saw that. So it was ja- January 2014, a, a snowy, right? A, 20, yes, a snowy January morning in 2015 when we uh, got to uh, spend some time with Joe Panic. What was remarkable about it is that it feels a lot fresher in my mind. I don't know why, but you know, I was I was there to take in the history as well as Willie Mays, which was pretty damn cool. Uh, what is your take on bringing home uh, a local boy? Uh, you know, we, we wouldn't be groping about for second baseman if not for Robinson Cano's hamstring tear. Uh, yeah, and there, there was a time in this season, it wasn't long ago, where I don't think anybody uh, 
would have been shedding too many tears about Robinson you know, having a missed time. Nothing person you know, you don't want anybody to have an injury. But, you know, on on one hand, he got hurt at the exact wrong time where his ability to play baseball was concerned. On the other hand, it's not like it's uh, it stopped the Mets, at least in the short term. But, you know, obviously you don't really want to try to burrow through every day necessarily with the Danny Echeverria and Louis Guillaume as your options. Although, you know, I've been fairly impressed by Echeverria uh, throughout his, his stay so far. But, you know, panic – you know, the, again, sort of like Brad Brock, you know, if, if these guys were at the top of their game, they wouldn't be so readily available. But, you know, changes of scenery and maybe somebody seeing something that a coach somewhere else didn't see, maybe, you know, the, the, the hometown factor, uh, you know, that, that, that can work all, all kinds of ways. It's worth a shot. And, you know, this this is a guy who has played in a World Series, who has won a World Series, uh, comes from a good organization. I feel like I'm saying he comes from a good family. Like we're, uh, like, like we're, 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 we're deciding he's good enough for our daughter to marry. But, um, you know, it would be a nice story <laughs> if, uh, if, if it happens. And, uh, you know, worst comes to worst, uh, you know, if, if, if after, you know, a couple of, theoretically dreadful weeks it's not happening well thanks for coming and we'll 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 try something else hopefully it doesn't come to that you know again this is assuming that he does sign which you know apparently you know that's where the arrows are pointing tonight so um yeah you know what uh when teams are on their way uh they they make adjustments uh they change on the fly as they say in hockey so if, if Brad Brock and Marcus Stroman, for that matter, and uh, perhaps Joe Panic are all part of this uh, recharged Met team, much like uh, just four years ago where we were talking about uh, Michael Conforto and Kelly Johnson and Juan Uribe and, and uh, Tyler Clippert and, oh, yeah, Ioannis Espedes, uh, who kind of, kind of changed the tenor of, of that team. Uh, it certainly couldn't hurt. So uh, let's uh, let's see what happens. But uh, well, well, welcome home. If, if in case uh, in, in case you happen to be on your way, let's put it that way. <laughs> well said. And uh, Greg, and then I'll go over to Mike after this. Uh, Greg, before we move on to historical nature, uh, since it's been a few podcasts since we've done so, and what better uh, podcast to to start back up than one Greg Prince is on, but. Uh, is there anything else uh, in the modern vernacular that you would like to discuss before we move on? Uh, in terms of the 2019 Mets, um, you know, you you, you, inv- you invoked his name in passing uh, vis-a-vis where we were one year ago. How, how about that, Jacob Degrom? And uh, quietly now putting together a season. I don't think he'll win another Cy Young, but he'll certainly finish high up there in the voting. He's the guy who you could envision taking the ball in, you know, either now we're really getting ahead of ourselves, but uh, whether we're talking about a wild card game or, or the last Sunday of the year or game one of a division series. I mean, this is, this is the, uh, 
You know, it, it hasn't gotten a lot of play the way certain other decades I've lived through have. I think we're, we're all still kind of getting over the fact that, that we changed centuries and millennia. But we're, we're at the end of a decade here in the 2010s. And I've, I've given this a lot of thought and done some research on it. And really, there's no question in my mind that the Met of the 2010s is Jacob deGrom. Uh, you know, we were talking about six seasons, uh, none of which have been bad, all of which have been good, one of which was, had been historic. And, you know, it's a guy who, we're talking about Joe Panic playing in the World Series team. Jacob deGrom has that pedigree. And, you know, hopefully he's heading back in that direction. So, you know, we, we almost, you know, almost take him for granted a little bit. Um, and, and that's, uh, you know, you should be so lucky to take Jacob DeGrom for granted. I'm going to throw one more name out there without going down the entire roster. When we were talking about the bullpen before, uh, the one name that did not come up, uh, speaking of, of great Mets of, of the last 10 years, Jay Reese Familia. Uh, imagine if you could get something out of Jay Reese Familia, which was the whole idea when the season started. He was going to be your great setup man to your great closer, Edwin Diaz. And he's actually looked not so bad the last few outings. And if suddenly Jerry's Familia is, you know, not, well, let's just say not so bad. Let's not, let's not get too crazy in, 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 in aspiring on his behalf. Uh, you know what? That's, that's a big improvement unto itself because this is a guy who, as we know, is a huge, huge part of two postseason teams. Uh, you know, the second postseason kind of a little bit on him in terms of the loss, but, uh, Kind of got unlucky that first postseason, but you know we're, we're talking about a guy with 96 saves. For if we're going to you know tip our cap to Brad Brock for having been really good in 2016, let's not forget that Jerry Familia was you know one of the best closers in the National League for for a couple of years, and you know was a big part of that Oakland team that went to the postseason last year. So you know those are those are two guys who've been here a long time, Degrom and Familia. One who is just kind of, after a blip, has kind of gone back to his just excellence because that that's what he's got. And another guy who, you know, cer- certainly plumbed the depths this season in Familia. And if he can come back, uh, you know, that's not now, you know, again, now, now maybe I'm just looking at the backs of baseball cards, as they say. But, you know, that's not a bad bullpen. If you get if, – if this is – Again, I'll bring it back to, to, to Mike's phrase. This is the market correction uh, period of the season. If Jay Reese Familia is going to, you know, you, you know, what goes down must come up, let's say. Uh, that's not a bad uh, weapon to have. So um, I will not get overconfident. Uh, I certainly will not get haughty. But I'm feeling pretty good about this team right now. I don't know where that's going to take them. I understand that it might not take them anywhere. But, uh, you know, what what a position to be in that we can think about going somewhere as opposed to, well, you know, there's however many games left. There's 47 games left. Why don't we get so-and-so up here from Syracuse and see what he can do because, uh, well, you know, let's look forward to next year. You know, guys, next year is here. Uh, you know, to, to, to quote a, uh, the, the motto of the, uh, the, the advertising slogan of the ill-begotten 2007 Mets, our season has come. It's this season, and it's nice to, uh, to, to be here in the middle of August almost 
and be thinking about a big series as opposed to just a series. So uh, it's very exciting. That it is. We'll most likely not be seeing Tebow time anytime soon. Um, Michael, <laughs> DeGrom, Familia, uh, or whatever you want to run with. Wherever I want to run with it. Well, you know what? We're going to, at some point, we're going to look back on this season uh, with fondness because of the guys we mentioned already, McNeil, Alonzo, DeGrom, maybe you know, Thor has something in store for us still, and, and some other guys. Uh, the only problem is, you know how I always say, you can't win pennants in April, but you certainly can lose them. Now, April wasn't our problem. June was, and, uh, you know, it would be a shame if we wind up ruining another woeful June. Uh, but uh, I, I'd like to throw J.D. Davis's name out there as well. Uh, let's get him some more bats and playing time. Figure that out. Again, that's going to be on uh, on Mickey Calloway and that <laughs> the board of analytics. You know, however they uh, decide to fit him in, but they definitely need his bat in the lineup. I understand Frazier is the better glove. Uh, you know, just try to utilize both of them as best you can. J.D. Davis for the 2019 season is batting 305 with a 373 batting uh, on base percentage, excuse me, and a 502 slugging. He's had 12 home runs, 35 RBIs. Greg, right now J.D. Davis is the unsung hero of this team in many ways. Really is, and he's done it from left field, which I didn't even know he could play left field when we got him. And he may not have known he could play left field when we got him. Uh, you know, Frazier was 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 just mentioned, and I, I think you know the the long term plan was let's let's nudge Todd Frazier aside, uh, pedal him to uh, some some contender, and uh, let's get J D Davis some reps. Well, you know, uh, <laughs> the season has a funny way of uh, of happening when you're making other plans, as they say, and uh, because because there is no Dom Smith at the moment, which is of course a bummer. Uh, you know, Davis ha- has gotten those reps, but in left field, and he's been okay as a fielder, and he has been sensational as a hitter. And yeah, I think he is the unsung hero, the dark horse, the guy who few saw coming, and he fits right into that core of of young and youngish players who are coalescing and carrying this team. And again, if if this does become a a great story that we look back on. We'll remember that seventh inning of the second game on Monday night with the three solo home runs that brought the Mets from 4-2 down to 5-4 up into over 500 and sweeping that doubleheader and the series and so on and so forth, hopefully. Um, but even if not, even if we just wind up saying, remember that, that run they got on that got them over 500 for a while, we shouldn't forget that that game began when that comeback began when J.D. Davis homered as if it's just another night at the ballpark for him because Davis does that, then Conforto, then Alonzo, and, you know, those, those were the guys who, again, got, got the bulk of the attention. Uh, it all started with Davis. So, you know, even when we were all 
taking this general manager to task uh, earlier in the season. The one thing that we could not take away from him, nor would we want to, was, hey, that was pretty good getting J.D. Davis for, you know, I don't remember who they traded to uh, to get him from Houston. Uh, he crossed this said. Ross Adolph, uh, the prospect from Brooklyn Cyclones last year. Okay. That's, part, yeah. of my, that's part, of, part of my problem is I get attached to those guys going to Cyclones games. And so I want to... I want some dollar. I want some value for my buck on that trade. <laughs> well, well, you're I still think, thinking I think about Dallas and Chiliani in those uh, terms. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I think we did okay on that trade. So, um, you know, he's uh, that's a bat. As they say, that's a bat that can play and is playing and is now playing in a pennant race. So, uh, yeah, all uh, all all hats off to JD Davis as well. And it's what's coming to fruition for him is, you know, everybody was saying he really couldn't get any playing time in Houston. He only had 113 plate appearances in 42 games last year and batted 175. And this this seemed to be the under-the-radar move that uh, really so far has been the best move that, that Brody's made. And hopefully Edwin Diaz can make that market correction uh, to go back to a term. That is uh, the theme of, uh, of our, our episode. So, uh, without further ado, uh, everybody, thank you for listening to the modern section of our uh, Metsian podcast. And we, uh, if you've never listened to an episode, and we, we so thank you for joining us on the 32nd episode, uh, we, when we're doing our official number episodes, we go to the uniform number and reminisce about some of the players to wear, in this particular instance, number 32. Uh, there's a list of 29 on ultimatemets.com, which is our source for the uh, the numbers. And Greg, I, I know you you're so well versed in the history of this team, and there are some names uh, here that that do stand out. Uh, uh, of course, as well as the current number 32, Stephen Matz. But who do you first go to when thinking of uniform number 32? Well. Uh... Probably when I when I was a kid, I would have said O.J. Simpson, but he was not on the Mets. And when I learned a little, and when I learned a little more, I would have said Sandy Koufax, who's a little before my time, and maybe a certain uh, principal owner of the New York Mets would still say that. But uh, there's one number 32 in Mets history who who stands above the others. Anybody who was around uh, d- during his heyday will will automatically gravitate to it. And and he's become one of those guys who ends up in every conversation as the overlooked, underrated Met in the scheme of history, to the extent that I think he, he really does get his due because everybody who knows who knows something comes comes around to mention him. That's John Matlack. Uh a stylish, talented left hander of uh the, the 73 Mets in particular was here, uh, you know, play, played a uh, a little bit in 71 and uh, stayed with the team through 77, was cursed, as many Mets starters are, but uh, even more so, believe it or not, than, than what we've seen uh, happen to Jacob deGrom uh, with a lack of run support. There were several years where he would just have, you know, records of 13 and 15, that sort of thing, and be com- completely bypassed when it came time to vote in the Cy Young, which was a crime, 
because he was as good a pitcher in the years where he was at the top of his game, which was for several years, as anybody in the National League, except, you know, in the mid-'70s, we were a very focused people as as baseball fans, and I would include the, the entire baseball complex uh, writers and uh, executives and so forth, you know, wins and losses. Uh, it was, was what made a great starting pitcher in people's minds. Well, John Matlack pitched for some poor offensive teams, the Nets, but when he had the opportunity, uh, when he took, when he took the ball, he was great. And, you know, yeah, you know, Seaver Kuzman is, is always what we say, certainly for 69, but, Honestly, having lived through the mid seventies, uh, it, it really would, would kind of go Seaver, Matlack, Kuzman. Kuzman spent a little bit of time in the wilderness before, you know, had getting his full arm strength back and having a second win to his career. But Matlack was a terrific pitcher, a hard throwing pitcher, a smart pitcher, guy who was <laughs> hit in the head by a line drive and came back like uh, you know missed one start, I think. So um, and and pitch some of the great clutch games in Mets history. Uh, the Mets were down one nothing and clinging, you know, in in the second game of the '73 uh, NLCS and clinging to a one nothing lead that where they finally uh, broke out and then got up to a five nothing lead. But that's that's the day John Matlack pitched his two hitter to uh, to shut out the Reds, even that series, and the Mets on their way toward the World Series. He pitched two terrific games in that World Series and then, unfortunately, running on fumes in Game 7 uh, was finally bested by Oakland. Uh, you know, I don't want to be that that cliche guy who, who invokes the name George Stone and who should have been pitching Game 6, but never mind that. Um, so he's number 32, as far as I'm concerned, and I, I, I think this is one of those numbers that even though there are a lot of numbers, a lot of guys, like you said, 29, um, who've worn 32, I think if you were to to take a poll of of serious Mets fans, it would be unanimous who number thirty two belongs to. Sort of like, you know, well, due respect to Mickey Calloway, number thirty six belongs to Jerry Kuzman, and really, you know, there's nobody else for number forty one. Uh, that that is Matt Lack and thirty two. Uh, honestly, you mentioned Stephen Matz; he's probably the runner up at this stage of of his development, which has has always been a little choppy. But it's also, let's be honest, shows you where 32 has gone when it has not been worn by John Matlack. Um, there have been a few good ones. Um, a, a guy who I think has probably already been forgotten about but wasn't that long ago uh, in this decade, Latroy Hawkins wore 32 and you know was a terrific pitcher for about a third of the season in a lousy season when uh, – I think Bobby Parnell was was the closer of record. We went from Frank Francisco to Bobby Parnell to basically nobody. And Hawkins, who at that point was just sort of the the wise old man of the bullpen, uh, kind of teaching grips and dispensing life advice to the younger guys, said, you know, what's that? You you need somebody to close games, Terry? Well, I guess I can go do it. And he racked up 13 saves for a lousy team in August and September which is one of those, again, it's, it was forgotten by 2014, but it's something I'll always remember. Um, a relief pitcher who I really adored uh, during one of those, what felt like a very special season. If you looked at the record now, it wouldn't mean anything to you if you didn't live through it. But uh, to me, the stalwart, if you'd asked me when I was 17 years old, who's the, 
who's the MVP of these, of these 1980 myths? I would have said Tom Hausman, who wore number 32, and was he was basically the he was the Seth Lugo, uh, to put it in in modern terms, of that bullpen. And when that team was, you know, the the, the magic is back here, and uh, the great comebacks that defined that summer, and kind of woke the franchise from its slumber. Uh, the guy who who kept that team in games more than anybody else was Tom Hausman, who passed away this past winter, uh, which, you know, it would, it would, it would be sad under any circumstance, but uh, really kind of hit me because, again, that this, this guy was responsible for, for some of the best, best, best weeks and months of my teenage years as a Mets fan. And, um, oh, yeah, one, one guy who actually accomplished uh, something that we, we don't have to really explain – and I'm not even going to bring up the one thing everybody brings up with this guy. I'm just going to say 2000 National League Championship Series MVP, Mike Hampton, uh, war number 32, probably the best one-year Met uh, that there's ever been. Uh, you know, started opening day in Tokyo and started the first game of two different uh, postseason series that the Mets won. He didn't pitch that well in the San Francisco series, but he pitched great in the St. Louis series, thus explaining the MVP. Not a New York guy, uh, you know, guy from, uh, I think, Gainesville or somewhere around there in Florida, and he was never going to stay, and I, I don't really care where he went or what he said. He gave us one really good year and should not be forgotten. And uh, I will I will finish with one other pitcher who I thought was going to be in that pantheon, uh, the number one draft pick of 1994, terrific-looking young player. Also, uh, uh, a Florida background, went to Florida State, Paul Wilson, who, you know, was going to be the next Tom Seaver slash Dwight Gooden, uh, but the, the arm injuries got to him, and he never really got to show what he could do. Had a few really good starts in 1996. His one, yeah, he pitched in one season as a Met, and then it seemed like he was on the disabled list forever after that. And you know, I've I've gone back and done some research for for whatever I was writing, and saw that you know every spring that there were stories like, oh, you know, I'm feeling good and. I, I think I can come back this year, and they would talk about him pitching in such and such spring training games, and then it would never happen. And finally, uh, he was the uh, the guy they sent to get a Rick White and um, Bubba Trammell, I believe, in uh, the part of the 2000 stretch when we were, when we were talking before about uh, you know honing your team for the stretch drive. He was one of the guys who they let go. And, uh, you know, he ended up pitching for the Reds for a while and, you know, had, you know, I, I got to put some time in the major leagues and, you know, I don't know what, what he's up to these days, but, you know, it's just one of those, one of those things, you know, we, we, as, uh, as, as sometimes cynical Mets fans talk about uh, all, all the draft picks that didn't work out. And, you know, we, we might be uh, tempted to, to say, Oh, this guy, Paul Wilson, he never did anything for us, but really, there was nothing wrong with drafting him number one. That that was not a controversial choice. And it just goes to show that you, you never know what's going to happen to a young man's arm and the rest of his body uh, when, when he's in the business of, of athletics. So um, I, you know, honestly, after Matt Lack, he is the one I thought of at number 32. So a um, few other guys as well. 
But, uh, you know, to be perfectly honest, uh, my, my sentiment uh, tally aside, it's, uh, it's John Matlack and uh, the current the current rights holder, uh, or, or left holder, if you will, Stephen Matz, and, uh, and send a few tips to the cap along the way. No, that sounds about right, and you really nailed it uh, on the, the head regarding Mike Hampton being one of the, the best one-year players uh, the Mets have ever had. Um, you know, it's interesting, Henry Mejia, uh, we were hoping, would be one of the best 32s in Mets history, but unfortunately, number one, he, during his best seasons, uh, had a different number. Um, yeah. And number two, the rest is history regarding Henry Mejia. Um, yeah. I, I, uh, I will pass it on to uh, Mike to uh, before I uh, keep going with uh, any of these names. Because I, I think what I, I love about this list, Mike, uh, uh, and I think you're, you're going to – I'm not sure whether you have it in front of your, you just because of your on location, as they say. Um, I got but so, well, some some of these names, man: Doc Edwards, Brent, Brett Hinchcliffe. Just great baseball names, even if they oh didn't uh, accumulate to anything. Uh, yeah, I mean, like so many times with these lists, sometimes uh, you just don't know much about some of them. But I'll refer back to John Matlock. I remember being a single-digit midget and. Uh, Guy like Matlock was a, was a tremendous source of pride because he formed, you know, for a nine and eight and seven year old that triumvirate with Kuzman and Seaver, and, and to see them in the All Star game together, Seaver, Matlock, and Kingman in '75, uh, prideful. '76, uh, even the start of '77 before everything went kaplooey. Uh, you know, having Matlock, uh, that's the way I would describe it. He was a tremendous source of pride. He was right up there, and uh, I, w- I would put that trio up with uh, any trio in baseball during that time. Uh, and Tom Hausman, same days, you know, late 70s, early 80s, my friends and I, we played a lot of Stratomatic baseball. And I replayed the 1979 season. Uh, Tom Hausman did not have a complete season. He was hurt that year. But I used him as a starter. Greg referred to him as a reliever, which he was. He started and both relieved it. Started. But I used him as a starter in nineteen seventy nine and I replayed the Mets season. Tom Hausman went twenty two and eight with a two point four eight ERA. I remember it like it was yesterday. Mm-hmm. Uh, I figure I throw it out there because he really was an excellent pitcher. It was just unfortunate that he pitched in what we now refer to as the dark days, uh seventy seven through eighty and eighty one. Uh, otherwise, you know, I'll, I'll repeat another name, Paul Wilson. That was unfortunate. That was part of Generation K. Seems like uh, those guys were cursed uh, outside of uh, Isringhausen, who, you know, had his better days outside of Flushing. Uh, but as far as Pulsifer uh, and, and Wilson, and they never, it never worked out for us here in, in, in New York. And uh, one other name I'll throw out there is Dick Fidro. If you remember the late seven, mid to late seventies, you know he was a Yankee reliever, and it was just awfully weird seeing him in a Mets uniform—something that I can't unsee. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I will finish up number thirty-two with two things. Number one, uh, Brett Brack, uh, Marcus Stroman. Hopefully, they can be better 
at their job as a local boy than John Lennon was for the New York Mets, uh, who is also John Lennon. John Lennon from my home. From my hometown of Long Beach, New York, and it was no point of pride <laughs> to watch him pitch for the Mets. Exactly. There, there you go. So just because we had been talking about local boys, let's just remember John Lennon once pitched for for us. So hopefully they can all be better than John Lennon. Um, I'll wrap up with this interesting little tidbit. Mike Hansen was the most popular Ultimate Mets database daily lookup. On September 17th, 2007, August 21st, 2008, September 13th, 2008, March 26th, 2011, and May 13th, 2019. So people of uh, the Metzine ilk certainly remember what Mike Hampton did for this National League winning team. And uh, without further ado, gentlemen, we will move on to our last word. And uh, Greg, first of all, thank you so much as always for uh, for coming on to the podcast and talking Mets with us. And uh, before your final word, please give us your shameless plug. Uh, com, where Jason Fry and I are in our 15th season of, uh, of covering this team and uh, – what, what seems to be, I want to say, our third season of, of covering a winning team, but that's not true. We had it; we've had a few. Uh, so please, uh, please follow us there. Uh, follow me on Twitter at Greg underscore Prince. Uh, go to Amazon, look up my name with the name uh, Mets, and uh, you'll find a few books. And if you're interested, please check them out. Thank you. What is your final word? Oh gosh, my final word is thank you to, to my well, uh, one of the co-hosts of my favorite uh, podcast, the Metzian Podcast, uh, Michael Echolant, who, uh, who who I got to meet in person for the first time a couple of weeks ago. Uh, invited me to a Mets game. Uh, terrific night. Stephen Matz threw a shutout. Got to got to sit between Mike and Rich Sparago, who I had met before, but I never spent that much time with. And uh, you know, it, it was at the outset pretty much of this great run the Mets have been on. So uh, if, if, uh, if Mike and Rich want to take a little bit of credit for uh, helping uh, helping get the Mets going, um, they are more than welcome to it. But uh, I had a great time that night. And uh, you guys are as terrific in person. Sam, I already knew that about you, uh, as you are on the air. So uh, just, just, just feeling good about everything where the Mets are concerned, and uh, that includes the Mets and podcast, but that's not new either. I, you know, I'm so thankful that you guys were able to get together, and unfortunately, uh, I, I've been. I, I mean, I, I really enjoyed my time in Denver, but of course, I want to make it back to City Field and, and take in a game with all of you guys. So, uh, without further ado, I will loop it over to Mike Lekalon. Uh, my final word is likewise, Greg. Likewise, the pleasure was all mine. Uh, I knew I was going to have extra tickets that day. I knew Rich was going to be at the game. Uh, so I put out the call to two people and to two people only. Greg responded. The other person uh, notified me that he already had a previous plans with his wife, and we can all understand that. Uh, but Greg, and, and it was Mr. Gary Max who had plans with his wife, so he couldn't make it, but those were the people who instantly popped into my head as to who I wanted to invite to this game. Uh, Greg, the pleasure was mine. Trust me. Uh, otherwise, as far as the Mets go, 
I'm having fun. You know, they they flip the script. So uh, we're playing meaningful games in August. Keep it up. That's my words. Keep it up. Uh, and let's see, and let's see if we can have those meaningful games in September. My final word is excitement. I don't care who they're facing. Uh, you have to beat the op- uh, the opposition, whoever that may be. Everybody has to play losing teams at some point, and the Mets have done what they they need to do to get back into the conversation for this postseason berth. Uh, it, it's it's Obviously, we, we all know how quickly the shoe can drop, uh, but right now we're hoping those shoes stay on the foot and uh, that the Mets keep on running all the way to uh, the end of October. And I haven't even looked at uh, if it's even in November this year, uh, but that is what I'm hoping for, that we can see the Mets win the last ball game of the year for certainly for me, uh, first time in my lifetime. So uh, thank you all for listening to a Metsian podcast. We're so very thankful that you join us uh, almost every week. Uh, and uh, we will, we're going to have a quick turnaround, most likely coming back on air Sunday night. Uh, but without further ado, Greg, do you want to uh, finish us off with uh, the new Pete Alonzo type of LGM? Oh, <laughs> uh, well... L, F, G, M, and the F I will leave to the imagination. Let's go Mets. Let's go Mets. Mike. <laughs> Let's go Mets. Forget about it. Let's That's go Mets, game. everybody. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> Good night, everybody. Thank you so much. Good night.